Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Well, good morning, everybody. Let me uh, warmly welcome you. There might be one or two still to come, but um, we will make a start. So uh, welcome to you all, wherever you've come from. And I want to thank you for coming to what, for us at Mount Pleasant Baptist, is really a suite of opportunities to hear Alan and Helen. But let me just quickly tell you what you can expect from this morning. We're, um, the plan, I think, is going to be pretty flexible, but our intent today is to have two main sessions that will be separated by morning tea, at which time the bookshop will be open just outside the door, and you'll see there's a whole raft of uh, resources available as well, which are Careforce Life Keys resources on the table just over here. And uh, then I think there is intent to also have a Q&A session so we look forward to that. It'd be a great morning. Are you excited? Yes. Yes. All right, let me introduce now uh, Alan and Helen Meyer. Uh, we're so glad that you guys are here and uh, thankful to you for coming. The, for these guys, they were due yesterday afternoon. Then their plane was unexpectedly diverted uh, back to Melbourne, I think, wasn't it? And then... Uh, never off the ground. Never, oh, OK, never off the ground. So they're great stories because there's bound to be a sermon illustration in there somewhere. That's all these sorts of things. So let me just read you now. that I've got a, a bio here, which is uh, awesome. Uh, so this is a, it's, it does sound a bit like this is your life. So just bear with me. Uh, Helen and Alan met at high school, were married soon after leaving school. They both began their working lives as teachers before a calling into ministry. In 1983, they were appointed as senior pastors of Careforce Church, a church which grew to over 2,500 people. Uh, with a passion to see people healed and restored and living the best life that God intended for them, Alan and Helen established Careforce Life Keys, a ministry that releases healing, discipleship and evangelism, and which is now used in more than 2,300 churches and organizations in over 20 countries around the world. Amazing. After 26 years of leading Careforce Church, they stepped out from their roles and were released to travel and speak, focusing on the ministry of Life Keys both in Australia and internationally and uh, in Perth. Uh, Alan has a doctorate from Denver Seminary. His project produced a program to restore and fortify the moral and spiritual integrity of men, known as the Valiant Man. And Helen has a master's in education, a master's in counselling. She's completed her master's in sexual health at Sydney University in 2017. They've authored and developed many programs in their passion to help others. They have four children and an indeterminate number of grandchildren, according to my notes. Beyond number. No, 12. Like the grains of sand on the seashore. 12 grandchildren celebrating their 51st wedding anniversary this coming Saturday, which is fantastic. We're so glad you're here. Alan, Helen... This is your life. Uh, thank you, Nick. That's, um, I'm exhausted after hearing <laughs> my life. <laughs> uh, it's a real privilege to be with you. Let me just mention briefly some of the things we'll be doing uh, this week. Uh, today we'll be talking about the issue of restore and the little journey we had in our own Church of Christ in Melbourne that uh, has now set us I guess the task which we will continue till we no longer do ministry at all. Tonight I'm going to talking to the men. It's my favourite field of ministry. The reality is that if you can help a man, you help everybody that he relates to. Um, I hate to say it, but the reality is that men are the problem. 
And uh, if you can address the issues of men, you can help the entire community. Now, I'm going to deal with youth and sexual issues on Friday night. Uh, Helen's going to talk to the ladies on Saturday. She can explain that. Um, and what we missed last night, we're going to do Sunday evening. And uh, I said to Helen after we got finished growling about not getting off the ground, um, on Sunday evening there'll be someone there who couldn't make it last night and who needs to hear what we go I'm going to talk about. Uh, so all of this is going to be lots of fun. And I'll, I'll maybe uh, make reference to that at various points that touch on what we're talking about today. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we have a gospel that um, made it worth getting out of bed this morning and it makes gathering here today worth every moment that we can invest. We give you thanks that we are not animals. We give you thanks that we are sons and daughters of the creator of the heavens and the earth, that you love people. We give you thanks that what you have planned is so extraordinary that it's even hard to believe. Uh, and yet if God, if, you, if Jesus is like you, then nothing is too good to be true. We pray today that uh, if you, you could simply expand our capacity to be useful to a broken world and to the saviour of the heavens and the earth. We give you thanks. We pray today that you make this encounter worthwhile. I pray that you'd breathe on my heart. I pray you'd breathe on the hearts of everyone in this room. You said, Jesus, my sheep hear my voice. If we were to hear you today, everything could be different. So we simply open ourselves to hear your voice and let your voice uh, set the direction of our life. I pray for my friends today and the churches they lead, for the staff they lead, for the people who look to them for leadership, I pray for them. Minister to them also, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For us, it all starts in Isaiah 61. Um, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. When Jesus returned from being baptized, he, the Bible says he went to his hometown of Nazareth and being a teaching rabbi, clearly this was when they handed him the scrolls to read, it indicated the respect with which he was already appreciated as a man of, a man of God, a man of the word. Um, he did something that teaching rabbis, that's perfect, teaching rabbis could do. And that is to not only read the scriptures, but to explain them as he did. And what uh, is recorded in Luke chapter 4 is the uh, way in which Jesus linked a number of passages in Isaiah together. Because if you read what Jesus said in Luke 4 and you read Isaiah 61, it's not the same thing. Um, what he's done, he, he has conjoined uh, a, a piece from Isaiah 42 with the opening of Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 42 is a passage which, if you look in your own Bible at some point, it has a subtitle called The Servant of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 42, The Servant of the Lord. It's as if he said, let me talk to you about the servant of the Lord. He pulled the piece out of Isaiah 42, plugged it together with, with Isaiah 61, and then said, uh, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the, uh, the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 42 and from Isaiah 61, and this is my job description. And why that grips me is because he is the head and we are the body. 
If Isaiah 42, 61, this whole issue of restoration, Jesus describes as his job description, it has now become ours because he is the head and we are the body. This, therefore, has become our job description. We are the body of Christ. And this is the passion of God. The passion of God is restoration. In fact, the, it's a wonderful thing that it, in Christ, he has determined to reconcile everything in earth, in heaven, and everything under the earth. He is the great reconciler, and restoration is one of the great passions of God's heart. As we read Isaiah 61, we not only discover that uh, restoration is God's passion, we also begin to get introduced to the elements that are involved in the process. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's where it all begins. One of the, the reasons I am impassioned to speak to Christian leaders about restoration is because the presence and the power of the Spirit is the most essential element involved in the restoration of the human heart. Um, there are things that the Spirit of God can do that no exercise of the will, no intellectual download, no desperate attempt at the human level can ever replace. And just one example is this, the simplicity of the new birth. You know, except a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's stuff the Spirit of God can do, nothing else can do. And the church is a temple made out of living stones for a habitation of the Spirit. If you can bring people in to the orbit of a Christian community, they find themselves sitting in an atmosphere. If it was Billy Graham, I think it was one of his profound confidences was that if I could get you into a worshipping atmosphere and into the orbit of the Holy Spirit, stuff will happen to the way you think, the way you respond. And it's one of the reasons he was, uh, he was an evangelist, one of the reasons he was a decisionist, make a decision. Uh, I'm not sure what my theology is any longer. The, the old, older I get, the, the, the more confused I've become. Um, I was raised in a Lutheran environment. I've, I understand the Lutheran position I was influenced by Martin Lloyd-Jones, so I became a Lutheran with Reformation tendencies. And then I got encountered by the Holy Spirit, so now I'm a, a Lutheran with uh, Reformation tendencies and charismatic overtones. And when you put all that stuff together, you're not always sure exactly what you believe. Um, and so when it comes to the issue of how the human will and predestination and all comes together, one thing I feel really confident about is put a person in an environment where the Spirit of the Lord is not only present but is resonating with people and stuff happens in that environment with a human life that can't happen anywhere else. So I just feel really confident. I love the, the preaching process. I love the discipleship process because you get persons in amongst the living stones where the Spirit of the Lord is. I think there's the moments where demons can't, can't disrupt them in the same way as they do when they're surrounded by people. And it, it means that I see the church as being such a vital part of the restorative process. And one of the tragedies that it is in, in recent years, there is a strong, a very strong movement to attempt to intimidate Christianity as being insufficient, incompetent, ignorant, incapable. 
and increasingly saying, well, if you must play with spiritual things, at least do it over there quietly and in private while we get on around the really important business of living. And Jesus would like to say something about that. Jesus would say, I sit upon a throne and I said to my disciples, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. You bring people into my presence and things will happen that cannot happen in in anybody else's presence. That's the, the significance, I think, of churches deliberately engaging in restorative processes. Here we are surrounded by the spirit. But the spirit is not the only element involved. It's not get everyone to, you know, shout hallelujah, sing longer songs, cast out more demons, bless God, do all that stuff as much as you can. That suits me. But there's more to it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The second element of of restoration is the cognitive processes. People don't change because they're stupid or because they're ignorant or they just think stupid things. It only requires one stupid thought to separate you from the kingdom of God. The Israelites thought they were grasshoppers that separated them from God's purposes for 40 years. One stupid thought. When they finally came to Rahab in Jericho, she said, when you guys turned up here, we were all scared to death because we heard what God had done for you. All this, they're shrinking in their little group over there thinking they're grasshoppers. In the land, they're all scared to death because they'd heard the stories. One silly thought, and for 40 years, they're wandering the wilderness. And people need, need insight. When Jesus came preaching, he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance is not weeping, it's not crying, it's not hating yourself, it's not flagellating yourself, it's metanoia, it's the turning of the mind. And one reason people don't change is they've never heard enough truth to make it possible. They can't repent, because repentance is a turning of the mind, they've never heard enough. You could sit in a church for 25 years as a survivor of sexual abuse and never hear one thing that actually touches on your area of brokenness. You could get, and as a result, you'd sit there thinking, God doesn't love me. He, doesn't, he never addresses my issues. Well, if you ever heard the stuff that would address your issues, change becomes possible. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's repentance demands sufficient input, cognitive input, to make the change of thinking possible. And as a result, preaching is not essentially jumping up and down and saying really enthusiastic things. It is the delivery of truth packages, enough detailed, insightful truth packages to make the change or the, of the metanoia possible. And if you add that to the presence of the Spirit, you're starting to make progress. But still there's more. He goes on. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now comes the issue of an environment in which emotions are understood and nurtured. The fact is uh, a healthy healing environment is not simply a highly spiritual educational download. Uh, More Bible study, more truth, learn more verses. In an emotional environment that is not conducive to understanding the struggle of the broken heart, very little gets in. And so the tone... The, the way in which people are spoken to, the way in which they speak, the, the, the very uh, the look on people's faces, the, the, manner, the, the manner of voice, uh, all of it has its role to play in cre- creating a, an environment in which broken hearts can safely uh, confess their struggles, be transparent, 
hear enough truth and, and begin to believe to, to get it in or to let it in. And one of the things that we've done, unfortunately, is to believe that if we could just get everybody in small groups, that that's exactly what would happen. Read the book of Job. The oldest book in the Bible is a book on how bad small groups can get. And we have to appreciate the fact that getting people in small groups sometimes sets them up for a disaster rather than a breakthrough because people have never been trained to know how to create the environment of safety when grief is on the agenda or hurt or brokenness or relentless sin is on the agenda. And when we don't know how to minister to that, we create an unsafe environment. People get plastic. They harden their hearts rather than soften their hearts because they're just trying to survive. And in an environment of judgmentalism and a failure to appreciate amazing grace, the goodness of God, the mercies, the patience of heaven, all of that kind of stuff, a small group can be about as dangerous a place as it actually gets. In fact, owning Bibles makes them more dangerous than they would ever have normally been. If you went to the pub to cry your heart out because your wife was dying of cancer, it is very unlikely that the publican would say, why the long face, mate? Oh, my wife's dying of cancer. Oh, really? Have you ever thought of sowing and reaping? You know, what have you been sowing, mate? What, what do you reckon you've been sowing to, to reap the thing? See, the publican is not going to say that to you. But in a small group where people own Bibles, it's exactly what they will say to you. And therefore, training, it becomes critical if there's ever going to be the kind of environment in which restoration is actually possible. You have to work at this stuff because every church says, oh, we're a restoring community. And good on you. I think we're supposed to be. But it requires very definite understanding. It requires training. It requires a posturing of behaviours and mindsets for a church to truly be a restorative environment, and that's what impassions us. Finally, uh, it's not enough just to have an emotionally nurturing environment. They must then find the balance between legalism and antinomianism. That is the helpful uh, providing of clear directions as to how someone acts consistently with the truth that they are currently hearing. The Bible says here, he came to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. One, one of the most famous prisoners in the New Testament was Peter. Peter found himself in prison. Everybody's praying for his, for his deliverance. An angel turns up and says to him, get up, put on your clothes, follow me. Now, if Peter does what he's told, tomorrow morning he'll wake up outside of prison. If he doesn't do what he's told, if he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to get up now. No, that's, that's the works of the flesh. You know, I'm, I'm just going to stay here and believe God for deliverance. Well, you can wake up tomorrow, you'll still be in prison. But if you want to get out of prison, here's the steps to take. Get up, put on your clothes, follow me. And in the morning, you won't be in prison. It takes some significant skill to tell the difference between legalism and box ticking practices and appropriate decisions which, if you are willing to make them today, will be part of the restorative steps that will lead you to a totally different life tomorrow. Get up, get dressed and follow me. And that, again, requires some skill. Now, all of this summarised um, comes to God's glory. Go to a few, a few more verses. And they shall be called oaks of righteousness. That's God's plan for a human life. He didn't create you to be a weed. He created you to be an oak of righteousness, 
And an oak is a powerful, extraordinary demonstration, magnificent demonstration of, of treehood, if you like to put it that way. And here's what the Bible says. God's plan is to turn you from a weak little sapling or a weed into an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God thinks a truly restored human life is the best advertisement to who he is as a, as a father. And this then becomes the challenge of our life. Now, how do we get there? Let me talk to you a little bit about the state of our nation. Um, we, have, uh, we, have, we have a nation in trouble. Everybody knows that. 48% of currently children are receiving childcare. I have a friend of mine who um, just built, spent millions of dollars on creating uh, a state-of-the-art childcare facility uh, in his church for one reason, and that is because said, most of the kids in this community need childcare. The fact is, if I give it, I said, you know, theologically I'm opposed to it. You know, mostly mothers should be taking care of their kids, but the reality is most mothers have to work. So if we want to really be a, a, a game changer in our community, come up with a state-of-the-art childcare centre and let us be the point at which they connect with that area of need. 30% of children receive uh, care from their grandparents. And uh, I don't want to get diverted, but one of the things that, that grandparents need to be thoroughly aware of today is the uh, tremendous impact of devices, of pornography... Of, that, of a very deliberate use of the internet at the back of all things to coach and encourage every user of the internet into addictive cycles of various kinds from which big money can be made. And our children are one of the prime targets. We maybe get to that later uh, when we talk about the parent thing. Don't shake your head, baby. I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah. 83,000 estimated abortions 2005. We don't always have up-to-date figures. This comes, this comes from McCrindle, McCrindle and his uh, research on his social research. Um, One-third of all births are now outside of marriage. Cohabitation, uh, 81% plus now. People live together before they're married. Um, in 1995, 100,000 marriages, 2015, 113. Marriage isn't less popular people just delay it an awful lot longer and what they do is they don't use the church they don't connect with the church in the traditional ways only 25 percent now of, uh, of of marriages actually take place with the assistance of an ordained minister and the church therefore does is now missing a huge opportunity to, to connect with the community because they just avoid us when it comes to marriage divorce um, people divorce at similar rates um, the, the tragedy is that they still long for a relationship that works. And as a result, they come around a second and a third time and don't know how to make it work any better the, the, the next time around as they did the first time around. A huge area for ministry, not only for ministry into the community, but from our encounter with Christians, all of this stuff is becoming standard fare in church. This is not just, this is what lost people do. This is what found people do too. And as Helen runs the uh, counselling centre at the church, which is currently in the home, she'll testify to the extraordinary, the things that extraordinarily have become normative for even Christians in our generation. State of our nation in mental health. 
1.5 adults will have a mental uh, uh, one to five adults will have one in five will have mental health issues in any given year. What for? Anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance abuse. Um, an awful lot more of that is under the surface and creating the anxiety. Uh, one in four young people under 18 will have a mental health issue. It's one of the important the, 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 the significance of having a really vital and valuable youth ministry, one that really works for people because it's one of the healthiest places a kid can be if they can find an environment that's safe and mentally secure. Uh, under 18, 44% of kids under 18 struggling with stress, with school, with body image. But that, again, goes back to devices. It goes back to the current uh, way in which our nation is doing life. When it comes to the state of my nation, the sexuality. One in eight online searches for pornography. 51% of pastors will say it's a temptation. 64% of Christian men watch porn at least once a month. Actually, if it depends on what you include in that. Um, lots of television is porn, it's pornified. 15% um, of Christian women watch porn at least once a month. 47% of households will say that porn is an issue. Uh, and the only reason that the numbers are so low is that many times people don't really know what's going on with their, particularly their children in the home. 22% of boys, 18% of, uh, 20% of girls and boys admit to, to sexting. And of those who send, 61% of the girls say they were pressured. I did something in Toowoomba with um, Melinda Reist, no, Tankard Reist, just a couple of weeks ago, and sitting and just listening to her uh, put on the screen things that girls tell her, boys say to them on, a, on an hourly basis in, a, in classrooms and, in the, it, and, this, and we're talking Christian schools as well. It, de it demonstrates we have an awful lot of work to do with regards to the sexual discipleship of our people in this age. Um, I only put that up to say the nation needs help. And we all know that. And then comes to a life-changing question. This was a life-changing question for me. Back in the 1990s, I was leading a church of Christ. And I had a visiting guy from California and a good man. He asked me a question. Uh, we were just a few years into leading our church. Um, he asked me, what are your pathways? Um, that this, sorry, it would be 1980s. I'm old. I remember the 1960s, actually, because I wasn't smoking marjoweni, and so I still actually have a memory of the 1960s. He asked me this question. He said, what are your pathways? I said, what do you mean? Um, he said, well, let me ask you, put it this way. He said this. Um, imagine someone puts up their hand in response to Jesus on Sunday morning. What is your pathway that leads them from there to faith, through their faith and into baptism? And I said, well, I guess they'd just come to church and we'd hope to get them into a home group. And he said, well, that's great. He said, but what is your pathway? And the more he asked the question, the more he realized I didn't understand the question because I'd never really thought it through. I'd not been raised in a church that had used pathways other than Luther's small catechism and Luther's large catechism. Uh, that I understood as a pathway, but I had not thought through the issue of, well, what's my pathway? How do I get a person from this moment to the place of baptism responsibly? And it began a 10-year 
journey to struggle with the question of um, what kind of pathways do we really need in our church? When Jesus said this, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teach them to observe all things I have commanded you, it raises huge questions of how do you actually do that? Now, um, because I had to preach in the Justice series in my own church recently, I was confronted by a reality I had not contemplated before, and that is the difference, the way in which discipleship mindsets have changed over time. If you were to go back to a first-century mindset and take perhaps one of the oldest um, catechisms or training tools that we know of, uh, you're looking at the Didache. Now, if you read the Didache, all 16 chapters of the Didache, and you realise that um, people had to know this stuff off by heart before they'd baptise you in the first century, I, I would fail the test because no one ever kind of discipled me on this kind of stuff. The kind of discipleship I had was more consistent with a later approach to discipleship. You come to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You, you unpack that entire confession, which would be a very standard confession for Christian churches all around the world. Let me ask you one question. What is in that confession that relates to the way a Christian lives? And the answer is virtually nothing. It is content-heavy on who is Jesus. It's the Alpha Course. Who is Jesus? Um, what it, where, where, where did he come from? He was born of a virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead and buried. And I believe all this stuff. And all of that is really important because these are foundational propositions. But where is the discipleship on the life that Jesus came? When he said, follow me, he didn't hand out, I want you to all learn this creed and be able to say it at the drop of a hat. He said, I want you to follow me. He that follows me will not walk in darkness. How do you do that? You've really got to go back to the Didache to realize this was not simply a whole bunch of propositions about Jesus. This was discipleship on a lifestyle. And the, the way that unfolded for me was that I was a functioning member of a local Lutheran church. I do not remember a time when I didn't believe everything that was in the Bible. But I regularly siphoned petrol out of other people's tanks and used the petrol to get to choir practice on a Thursday night. I regularly stole my lunch from the university cafeteria because our emphasis was on believing rightly but the emphasis on living rightly had somehow got lost in the process. In fact, as Lutherans, it was almost, you got to be careful about that living rightly stuff because you'll start thinking you're saved by works. And I remember preaching at uh, Lutheran youth camps and being told when I said to, them, to the kids one day, except you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom. And I was told you can't say that to Lutheran kids. I said, why not? Because they're all born again when they were baptised. And I said, I'm, I'm not sure I can be a Lutheran very much longer because I think these people need to get born again as much as anybody else. Uh, I think we're believing stuff and in some ways almost reduces their commitment to lifestyle rather than makes or urges them to be followers of Jesus in a truly Jesus-like lifestyle as they're trusting in him. Said more than, more than I intended to there, but there you go. Get all that for free. <laughs> when there is no pathway, when you haven't got a pathway to accomplish this, 
it becomes serendipity as to whether ever people find out what this stuff is about. When there is no pathway, discipleship becomes haphazard and it's accidental. If you meet the right person, if they get you reading the right books. Now, it took to me when I was 25 years old. I was in high school and a guy came from Martin Lloyd-Jones Church and got me reading Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's when I began to, my faith began to take off because someone finally introduced me to a, a form of discipleship. It was a haphazard and accidental, even though I was in church all the time. Restoration is haphazard and accidental. You're a survivor of sexual abuse. Where do you find the solution to that in the Apostles' Creed? Your marriage is going badly. Where do you find the solution to that in the Apostles' Creed? The answer, it's not in the Apostles' Creed. Restoration is haphazard and accidental. Um, family of origin issues. You're raised in a, dis- in a dysfunctional family background. Where is the solution to that found in the Apostles' Creed? It's not there. We'll go to the Nicene Creed. It gets worse because now it's more complicated. And you think if you understand, you know, very God, a very God, light of light, begotten, not made. So if you understand that stuff, that maybe I'm making progress as a Christian and you may be going backwards. You may know more but be less like Jesus than you ever were because now you've got something to argue about and be mean and, 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 and unkind to people about. If you don't have a pathway, restoration becomes accidental. Areas of discipleship, restoration, obedience and life change are totally overlooked and you can miss it completely. Discipleship and restoration cannot be safely delegated. And here comes the key. Um, If I don't have a pathway, I can't delegate the discipleship in an area of Christian life and breakthrough and deliverance and all of the healing that comes through following Jesus. I can't delegate that because I'm not even sure myself what I'd be saying to people about that. Now you give it to a less prepared, less competent person further down the pecking order uh, in, the, in a church hierarchy of understanding leadership, you appreciate that one of the reasons people don't want to be home group leaders anymore is because it's really challenging when people ask you questions and have issues and you don't know what to do about that. Uh, do I have to invent a solution to this stuff? Because... I don't know what to do. And one of the reasons they withdraw is because you feel the onerous task of leading people. In, you feel like you're as lost as a goose in a hailstorm and you don't know where to take them. And you can't delegate because you don't have a pathway. The intended release of the body of Christ is frustrated. And uh, the early church was very, very deliberate about pathways. The Didache is a fine example. Now, um, here comes one of the main things I want to say to you in this first session. Uh, and that is this, that building a great church is about building a network of discipleship, a network. Um, Jesus had, as a different, had a different view of how church works than sometimes has unfolded in uh, later generations. When he came to his disciples, the Bible said that they were mending, some of them were, were mending their nets. And Jesus said this to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, the Greek word involved in mending your nets is the word katatidza. It means to prepare something for use, to to mend it, to put it into into functional purpose. Um, Jesus did not hand out fishing poles. He didn't say, I want to make you fishers of men, each take a fishing pole. Because they didn't fish with fishing poles. That's not how they did it. They fished with nets. And the interesting thing about fishing with fishing poles is that not everybody can do it. Not everybody's good at it. Um, uh, 
I guess um, I keep forgetting people's names. Whose name do I want, baby? You haven't got a clue, have you? No, that's no, okay. Um, Willow Creek. Bill Hybels, yeah. If we're still allowed to mention Bill's name. Bill Hybels. Um, why do I want to mention Bill? I have no idea. Forget it. Move on. I'm old, I tell you. If any of these thoughts make sense toward the end, I'd like someone to come and explain it to me. I'll write it down and I'll never forget it again. Oh, that's what I mentioned, Bill. I had a, it was a really good reason. Um, he, he didn't hand out fish. Oh, that's right. Bill Hybels says about one in ten people have a gift of, evangel a gift of evangelism. So if catching fish depends on uh, fishing poles, we're not going to catch very many because most people aren't very good at it. But that was never Jesus' plan. It's okay to have people out there doing their individual thing, but he saw the church as a fishing net. And what makes a net so amazing is that it's made out of dumb pieces of string. I mean, it's not sophisticated at all. A fishing, if you go fly fishing, it is sophisticated stuff. Most of you couldn't do it. Uh, the, you've got to have the right line and a whippy rod and then a little tie at the end. You've got to right, tie the right kind, of, right kind of fly. You've got to take a lot of skill to get it out where you want it. And then you've got the skill to get it back in again. It's amazing. Most people will never be able to do it. But a net is just made out of dumb pieces of string. But the thing that makes a net work are the knots. It's the connections of one piece of string with another and having a place, you know your place and you hold your place and if all the bits of string are in an appropriate spot with actual knots where they have a relationship that's just not in constant flux, with a net you can catch millions of fish. And that was Jesus' plan. And here it comes out again, this word katatidzu comes out in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. This is Paul sharing the wisdom he got from Jesus personally. Paul says it was he, it was Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to catatidzo God's people for works of service, to build a net with God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ could be built up. And one of the finest and simplest examples of that is Alpha. See, Alpha is an example of what happens when someone comes up with a pathway. Well, how is it possible for, a, for an Oxford-educated Englishman to make any difference in America or in Australia or, or in India? Well, the answer is Alpha. Because when Nicky Gumbel figured out what to tell lost people that could help them understand who Jesus was, and he put it in a course, and then they showed people how to cook chicken wings and how to set up a room where you can eat chicken wings and have people who have very different perspectives on life sit in the same room without hurting each other and be kind and good to one another and watch Nicky talk about something and then sit down and have a discussion. He put a fishing tool in the hands. There are more than 27 million new believers in the body of Jesus today because somebody came up with a with a fishing net. And then all churches had to do was get a few people who had a heart for this. Some people can't, might be able to, most people couldn't do the talks. Nikki has a gift. You don't have to repeat that gift because we've got ways of repeating it. But you've got to create a net, a fishing net. And you take ordinary string and you help them to know how to 
serve wings and do the talks and behave appropriately and suddenly the church is acting like a net in ways it had never done. There'd be churches, if you took Alpha out, they wouldn't win a single person in a year. But you put Alpha in and they're they're baptising people regularly because now they're working as a net, not individual fishing rods. And that then becomes a key. Martin Luther put it this way. See, Martin Luther presented the Lutheran church with a, a pathway. It's called his small catechism. Uh, He said the deplorable destitution, which I recently observed during a visitation of the churches, has impelled and constrained me to prepare this catechism or Christian doctrine in such a small and simple form. Alas, what manifold misery I beheld. The common people, especially in the villages, know nothing at all of Christian doctrine, and many pastors are quite unfit and incompetent to teach. Well, thank you, Martin. That's very encouraging. Yet all of us are called Christians, have been baptized, and enjoy the use of the sacraments, although they know neither the Lord's Prayer nor the Creed nor the Ten Commandments and live like the poor brutes and irrational swine. Thank you, Martin. We appreciate that too. Still, they have, now that the gospel has come, learned to abuse all liberty in a masterly manner. He created a pathway. It's called the small catechism. 500 years down the track, I was the recipient of that pathway. At the age of 13, I spent two years with my pastor on Saturday mornings. He would take us through and disciple us on... Some of it didn't stick real well, and that's where the milking the petrol comes from. Um, Sometimes you've got to go through it more than once. Uh, but the reality is most of the Bible I know and most of the grace understandings that I had were imparted to me through a pathway 500 years old. George Whitfield says this, My brother John Wesley acted more wisely than I. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined together in classes and so preserved the fruits of his labour I failed to do this, and as a result, my people are a rope of sand. George Whitfield was profoundly the better preacher, but he had a a lesser impact. Uh, John Wesley created a methodical approach to Christianity, and that starts back in the Great Awakening of 1739. My father got saved in Malden, Victoria, in a Methodist revival in around about 1917. Um, my, my dad was a recipient of John Wesley's ministry 200 years down the track. I am the recipient of that. Pathways are really, really important. Now let me to- toss this thought in. Already, just some of the stats we put up, we're surrounded by pain. If you were to walk out of the door of this church and you walk down any street you like, just pick any street, knock on 10 doors, doesn't matter, any 10 doors. By the time you have knocked on 10 doors, you encounter everything on this list. Absolutely everything. One thing that um, McCrindle discovered in his research of Australians is that the reasons Australians don't go to church is not because they hate church and it's not that they hate God. He said this, the number of people who don't go to church because they don't believe what we believe is relatively small. He said the really big issue is that by and large Australians don't think anything happens in church that would actually relate to them. You see, you guys, you know, I'm not that into public singing. I'm, I'm, why would I get out of bed on a, on a Sunday morning and go sing? I'm not that into public singing. You know, if it works for you, God bless you, you know, sing till your heart's content. But it wouldn't work for me. 
what we discovered in our little church, and on Sunday I'll unpack this in greater detail when I deal with the parable of the Good Samaritan, the way Jesus kind of addresses this issue of being surrounded by pain and walking past it every day. I did that. I led my church in Mount Evelyn for 10 years before God opened my eyes or heart to this. I walked past half-dead people every day and never recognized what I was looking at because suffering in countries like first world countries like Australia is almost entirely done behind doors. I have never once in 70 years of going to church come home from church and found a dude beaten up by robbers lying in the gutter on the side of the road. Closest I ever got was I found a dude uh, half naked one night tied to a lamppost. It turned out to be his bucks night and it was his friends that did it to him, so really it wasn't my good Samaritan moment. <laughs> That's as close as I've got because you don't find suffering like that in that, in that way in Australia very frequently. It's behind closed doors, it's under, under roofs and in bedrooms where people soak their pillows with tears because they live with a... They're half dead, beaten up by Satan and their own stupidity and ignorance. Um, and the only reason they... They never see church as a place to go is because they don't think anything happens there. And the opening of the door for us was with what Helen's going to talk about in the next session. She's going to talk about how God opened our heart to appreciate that we could do ministry with female survivors of sexual abuse, um, which was just one of multitudes of areas. Chemical dependency. My brother became a heroin addict. Sexual abuse. That's where it all began for us. Sexual addiction. Valiant man. We'll talk about that a little more maybe. Marriage breakdown. When I moved into our area, guy next door was building a house. Came from England. He, he was an immigrant with his family. And I thought, I can't wait till we finish our houses. I'll invite him over for dinner. I'll share my radiant faith with him. Well, finally, we finish our house. I get him in the door. I just come back from a mission trip to India. I'm bubbling with this stuff. He thought I was an absolute idiot. Oh, good Lord, got one of them at the back of the, you know, back, you foul Christian. And for 10 years, I couldn't reach that guy. Came home from doing a wedding one Sunday, and as I pulled up in my driveway, his car pulled up right behind mine. He got out of the car with tears running down his face. He said, Al, my marriage is failing. Do you think you could help me? He came to church with us the next morning, gave his life to Christ and then began the journey for them of trying to help him. Couldn't save his marriage. All I could do was help him have a really good divorce without turning it into a, you know, an, an early retirement fund for the local lawyers and uh, maintaining as dignified a relationship with that, with that woman as he could. And out of that, that, you know, that man, my neighbour, came to Jesus. Hey, a marriage breakdown. This, these, the fact is we're surrounded by pain is one of the most helpful tools for getting someone's attention because at last I don't have to convince you that you need help. So the challenge of, of Alpha, this is the challenge of Alpha, can I find someone who's asking questions about Jesus? The average Australian doesn't wake up in the morning saying, I wonder who Jesus is. They don't, that, that's not their question. Their question is, why can't I stop drinking like I do? Why do my wife and I fight so much? Why can't I get these kids to behave themselves? Why do I keep watching porn when I know it's killing me and it's making me, I hate myself for doing it. I just don't seem to be able to stop. Why can't I manage money? Why is our debt so out of control? That's what the average Australian wakes up wrestling with. And if churches were dealing with this stuff, not just, you know, we often say, oh, I preached on that last year. Well, pity was they weren't there to hear it. So they don't even know you did that. 
And by the way, most of your church weren't there either. And then secondly, if you'd asked them a week after what you preached on last week, they couldn't even tell you. And as a result, we, we sometimes overdo the, what we, the amount of discipleship we think we can do from a pulpit. You can raise flags, you can point people in certain directions, but discipleship doesn't happen much that way. It happens face to face, and it's got to go on uh, over extended periods of time. Sexual addiction, marriage breakdown, divorce, parenting, parenting uh, family dysfunction, grief. When Helen came up with the idea of creating the course for children we call Kids with Courage, we launched that in our own church and then it went to the local primary school. The local primary school was so in love with it they, that the principal told the, local, the, the other local principals he related to and then we were running it in five local primary schools. Cardinia Church of Christ in Geelong ran it in seven local primary schools. You help kids struggling because they can't make friends at school. They're, they're not learning well. There's a lot of disruption in the home and now you're teaching kids um, how to share their needs without punching someone or, or retreating into isolation and loneliness. They start reparenting their, their parents. One Sunday morning, this big plumber and his wife and all these little kids turn up with a 10-year-old who went through Kids With Courage. Go, oh, I want you to meet Peter. He was, he was my facilitator. Now you've got a whole little family sitting there in church on a Sunday morning because somebody helped one of their kids. You help their kids, they'll love you for the rest of your life. Even highly dysfunctional families love their children. They just don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to handle their responsibilities. All of this stuff represents open doors to our community if you have pathways and a competence to do something effective with them. And this is not just putting Band-Aids on things. This is the open door to everlasting life. Uh, But in order to do that... Um, you've got to appreciate that delegating ministry like that requires a number of things. Firstly, uh, Job, Job underlines what happens when you delegate small group ministry to untrained people. They can damage each other profoundly. So training becomes the key. Um, we began this in 1992. It turned us into a church that was known for pastoral care. It's why Hillsong gave us a platform there for 10 years as part of their uh, transformation department, community outreach and transformation. And probably the most important offering we have is the training course for small groups, uh, small group leader and facilitator training. If you train, you'll be surprised at how useful ordinary people can be. We keep describing our ministry as ordinary people doing extraordinary things in Jesus' name. We just take ordinary people, bits of string, just help turn them into a net. Uh, And with training, uh, very ordinary people can discover that they have the skill necessary. We've even had brain-damaged people who find they've got the skill. One of our best men's facilitators, a guy with brain damage, couldn't even hold a job, but you put him in a small group and he just knows the right thing to say to people. Uh, Little training, it's amazing who can get deployed. Secondly, you've got to put tools in their hand. If If you don't have a tool, if you've got a tool like Alpha... Train some people to use it. Get, get the rest of the church shooing people in their direction and they'll catch fish for you. Um, the same is true in every area. And as I said with Alpha, the challenge you have with Alpha is can you, can you get, find people who are asking questions about Jesus? With, with our stuff, you don't have to... That's not the challenge. Can you find people who are desperate enough to want to do some work on their marriage? 
Um, and we built all of our courses not from a Christian perspective. It wasn't about doing ministry to Christians, although we're doing ministry to Christians. It was doing ministry to people, saved or unsaved. Because I have this, I have this raw conviction if I can get unsaved people sitting in these groups, I can say Jesus as often as I like. And as long as what I'm doing makes sense to them, I can say Jesus till the cows come home. And they're quite happy with that. I can ask them, would you like me to pray for you? And they'd be happy with that. They just want to know that it's not just mumbo-jumbo. It's not just spiritual ease, that it really is helpful, insightful stuff, which they could begin to live out. Put a tool in their hand. We got 15 of them. We created 15 different tools uh, to address different issues. Then you've got to prov- use your best people. Don't wear out, wear out your best people. One of the dangers of having some skill in a church is that people will kill you. Um, they will come to you because you're the man or you're the woman. Well, use them to provide structure and support for other people so that you've got delegates, people to delegate. They can use their skills to coach and encourage and answer the really tough questions while other people, like worker bees, um, just continue to build the hive. They're just building it all the time. Structure and support and then believe in the body of Jesus. I think the church is a magnificent thing. Because it's the bride of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest healer the world will ever know. If I could just bring people in the orbit, I keep thinking that anything's possible. Um, the outcomes are wonderful too, by the way. When you do it, this when you do this, it produces leaders you never knew you had. You can't produce leaders by sitting them in a leadership class. It's one of the dumbest ideas known to man. Jesus did not run a run a leadership class in Galilee. He had disciples on the road, casting out demons, watching him heal, listening to him teach. Then he'd send them out and make them do it too. It wasn't a, you know, sit in seminary for three years and take notes. It was now. He'd turn around and say, 5,000 people, why don't you guys feed it? Next thing you know, they're doing what they can't do because Jesus told them to do it. You find leaders get developed because they're doing ministry, not hearing about ministry or thinking about ministry. Then you get church health. You begin to address stuff that often remains unaddressed. Um, sex. I went for 27 years to a Bible-believing church and never heard a message on sex in 27 years. I started thinking Lutherans don't have sex. I was thinking of becoming a Catholic, I tell you. I, was, well, I think the Catholics are in it. I'm getting out of here. No, Lutherans have sex. They just want to talk about it. And as a result, we were, we were just... We were in a vacuum of insight on sexual issues. Church health begins to change because you're now dealing with stuff that often perhaps just never gets mentioned or addressed to any degree. People begin to follow Jesus in ways they hadn't done before. People's lives get rebuilt. They begin to become oaks of righteousness, not just struggling from one crisis to another. Pastoral care can be delegated. It's not just you use your professionals to train, release and oversee rather than just running, trying to do all the pastoral care and the best of all, people come to Jesus. So the last questions, and then we'll take a break, is this question, what are my pathways? Now, I'm talking to Baptists, so the the reality is that many of you will have some of this stuff well sorted. Um, This would be my experience that uh, possibly amongst the Baptist churches you get those who are most thoughtful Um, about the whole process of discipleship Uh, and as a result some of what I've just said might be to you you know old news and I'm certain that'd be true 
But firstly, you need pathways on faith and church issues. I developed a whole series on that. It took a lot of work. Things like knowing Christ. How do I get people from faith to baptism? First, indications of faith to baptism. How do I do that? Um, church life. How do I disciple people on worship, prayer, communion, giving? I'll give you one. Giving. Uh, one last thing before I finish. Take the issue of giving. This blows my mind. One of the most desperate areas needed for discipleship is people learning to manage money. Now, I have a sub-major in accounting, and I taught business subjects for seven years. Never had a budget of my own, never run one. No one ever showed me how. My parents didn't disciple me. My church didn't disciple me. And even though I have a sub-major and an economics degree, that didn't disciple me. So here I am, 30 years old, I've never run a budget. I go into full-time ministry. First thing my senior pastor does, sits me down and says, how are you going to manage on the miserable amount of money we intend to pay you? (laughs) And I said, I'll be okay. He said, no, no, no. I said, that's not an answer. How are you going to do it? I said, well, I'll be okay. I said, oh, you don't have a budget. No, no. Well, you're going to have one. So we sat down. He constructed with me my first budget. I'm preaching in other people's church every Sunday. I'm somewhere every Sunday. Virtually every Sunday, I'll hear someone do a talk on money from the pulpit, the importance of giving. Shut up. (laughs) Disciple them on money. Stop talking about it in church every Sunday. Disciple them behind the scenes and you won't have to talk to them about it. Help them build it into an honourable Christian's life. Manage your money well. Learn to honour the house of God. Learn to pay your own bills. Learn to be generous. The whole thing. But Disciple them. I created a course called Mastering Your Money. What I'm stunned about is that churches by and large just ignore it. You mean you have people in your church who don't need financial discipleship? Yeah, but why don't we do it? I don't know. Well, you know, we've just got to get past that and do the work. You just do the work. Then secondly, there's life issues. Identity, marriage, sex parenting, finance, restoration from dysfunctional family, divorce, abuse, addictions, all of these areas. Our country is crying for this stuff. And that's what we're here to talk about. Now we're going to focus in on just one area. Um, If we were to do the whole, normally our Restore Conference takes four sessions. So we've got to kind of compress this this down. That's right. (laughs) This is the short version. Um, so we're going to focus on sexual discipleship because I just think it's one of the areas of the greatest silences in the, in the church. Um, questions. Why would we talk about it? 30, the stats are 35 to 65% of any population are affected by sexual problems at any one point in time. So you could walk into church on any Sunday you like and you could look out and say one-third to two-thirds of these people are facing sexual problems now. however, are facing discipleship challenges. And silence is not a discipleship mechanism. (laughs) Bible says in Ephesians 4, alienated from the life of God through ignorance. Just don't know what to believe or do. Now, why the silence? Because we don't feel qualified. Thank God for Patricia Wirakun, but she can't do it all. Uh, It might be intrusive. It might be embarrassing. I wouldn't know what to say. I won't be able to answer questions. Maybe sexual issues aren't the real issue. Maybe if they just believed more. Um, and I don't want to be moralistic. All of those are reasons why we don't do or say stuff. But the sexual health stats are vitally important. Do you realise only 39% or 
would even discuss sexual difficulties with their own spouse. So even between people with whom their sexual intimacy is the most intimate part of their relationship, even there, uh, 60% of those people will never have a conversation about the issues that they are facing. So only 65% of gynaecologists will raise sexual issues. Only 3% of patients report to their doctors spontaneously. So you could have one in five will go, but very rarely will they say anything about it. But if the doctor was to ask a specific question, 19% will then report. So six times as many people walk into a doctor's surgery with a need they will not articulate until they're asked. And as a result, it becomes really important to learn to ask questions. Uh, these are very important issues. Sexual feelings are a significant in how a person's managing life. Sexual problems manifest in the major symptoms that bring people for help. People can come with depression, uh, sexual issues at the back of it. The, the dude does pornography he's, the, or he's struggling with impotence. So there's the, the, the relationship in the marriage is bad, but we never get there, and yet that's the core of the issue. Anxiety, relationship difficulties, self-esteem, and yet they're often masked. So you don't get there. We never uh, unfold it. And referral may be needed, but that's never going to happen until those questions are asked. Now, last thing I'm going to say, and then Helen's going to take over. Who needs help? Well, first of all, young singles desperately need a theology of sex. That's why I bring out my Search for Intimacy course. I'll I'll just sell that to anybody. Um, Normally, we only make our stuff available to churches, and we encourage churches to do the discipleship. But this stuff is so important. Um, anybody who wants it can have it. There's nine sessions on DVD with a manual to go with it. And young singles need not just rules about sex, they need theology about sex. And the, the average parent hasn't got any um, because they've never, never been heard, even heard a theology of sex discussed. The second group who need help are parents. Here they are trying to... They're responsible for their kids. I never got five-minute sexual discipleship from my mum and dad and I never got five minutes dis, uh, discipleship from my church so I, I would have done if I look back on my parenting this would be an area where I didn't know what to say until I began to generate the material myself then there are people who are single again they're through divorce or death they're struggling with romance finding a life's partner they never had a clue the first time around now they're back in the saddle again and they haven't got a clue the second time around they, and they might be in their 40s their 50s or 60s the highest rate of sexually transmitted diseases in Australia today are in the 50-plus age group. <clears throat> because the, the fear of pregnancy is now gone. They never had an ounce of idea the first time around. And even in Christian circles, they're doing a lot of stuff that uh, is, is damaging to their soul and to their physical health. Then men need specific help. That's why I created the Valiant Man course. Men, they need more help than women. The biggest problem that women have with sex is men. The biggest problem men have with sex is themselves. And if you can help men, you help everybody. 98% of the sex crimes reported in Victoria in 2014 were males. 98%, you figure out, if you help men, a lot of people have a less stressed life. Then, of course, married people. We assume you don't need to disciple married people on sex because they're having sex. Well, that's what you think. And they bring the distortions from their single years into marriage and getting married doesn't heal a sexual distortion. It gives you a place to express it. And it's why marriages are miserable and they break down. One of the best things we've been doing in this last two years, we've we've got a partnership going with Focus on the Family 
and we're doing marriage retreats for a whole weekend. And you realise in the body of Christ just how desperately people need marriage discipleship, including sexual discipleship. This is what Helen's going to talk to you about. Survivors of sexual abuse need specific discipleship. And then finally, um, confused over gender alignment. Am I gay? Am I straight? LGBTQI issues? They become... Now, that's not my expertise. Helen's got some. I haven't got any, so don't ask me. Helen's now going to talk to you on one of the great breakthroughs in our church life, the door of hope. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Okay. Um, look, this is an area that, which we, that we started out in terms of our whole uh, discipleship reaching our community with, and it just happened the way God unfolded it for us. I just want to just say a couple of things about context. This is a church where we actually developed it. Um, this course that I, or this journey pathway, whatever you want to call it, is not a th- theoretical. It actually sprang out of life, out of need, out of the area. And we were on the fringe of um, Melbourne and in a semi-rural area. And uh, we basically, socioeconomic setting, people sometimes think, well, you just need to have all these high flyers to do anything much. No, we were actually a blue-collar area, lots of tradies, lots of farmers, lots of labourers. It was very much a high-needs area, Um, very few services out that way, back down the valley, uh, which was basically the valley was behind our church. Uh, There was a high suspicion of um, anybody in government agencies or anything like that, and as we know that uh, families that are struggling tend to more and more isolate themselves from the very help that they need. And so we were able to make some inroads into that area through the um, Kids with Courage program that we developed that enabled us to uh, be in schools, secular schools, primary schools, and then eventually into the homes of some of these families that were really struggling and really be able to develop some trust. See, the whole trust issue is the big issue for those families that we were wanting to help, or God just led us uh, down that pathway. But it's it's uh, the whole issue of what do you do, how do you build bridges? You have to build it through trust, and very many of these families have uh, struggled with that. So, But how did we begin? Well, first of all, it, very briefly, it started with one of our staff members who had such a heart for female survivors of sexual abuse because she was hearing a lot of stories And so she decided to take herself off to do a course, and she did a course. She started seeing people one-on-one, but the issue was that uh, when people started to hear that they could get help, we started getting people from the community come and a line um, outside her door, her office door, ended up um, burning her out simply because it's just face-to-face, one-on-one. You can't possibly deal with the needs that we have in our community And so God kind of led us through that pathway. What were we going to do? And through a series of events that I haven't got time to go into, but some real miraculous things, you can say God was looking over our shoulders, saying and pointing in different directions, bringing people around us. Um, What resources did we really have? Well, we started, we, we we formed a team, and we felt like, okay, the thing that's really missing is training. Because myself and um, a senior nurse and a couple of other women went to the US and had a look at a whole range of different things that was happening over there. 
in terms of support groups in hospital treatment programs, churches that were running um, outreach and restoration programs. And the one thing we came away with was there is no training really. There's no uniform training. There's no way of helping people do this well. I mean, I sat in some support groups where we had uh, perpetrators with survivors. Can you imagine? Um, other groups where we had um, a room full of about 50 survivors of sexual abuse trying to be uh, run as a single group. Um, so you can imagine, and I guess with my teaching background, Alan's teaching background, we felt like you've got to train people to do these things well. So we formed a team uh, from within our church because our church did actually have uh, teachers, social workers and uh, um, welfare workers. God had done a really good job of stacking our church with the very people we needed. So we started, we, we developed a team. We got together with Alan with theological background as well. And we developed that small group leader and facilitator training, which very little has changed except the quality of the presentations changed a lot. The other thing that we established was policies and protocols on how you run these kind of courses, which goes across the board to all of our 15 courses, but across the board, if you're going to have any sort of integrity um, in the community, with community agencies, uh, with the secular community, you actually have to do things the right way. And the way we did it was we actually trained people within our church how we wanted them to proceed, perform, um, even when we had unchurched people coming in. We didn't do it one way with the churched people and then when unchurched people came, we changed the methodology. When we did the training, we were modelling what we wanted to see happen because that's the only way people are going to grow and train and sit within the framework of what you're trying to do. And as Al said, we had people who you wouldn't necessarily um, pick out and choose to be competent facilitators but with good training with good frameworks with good supervision they actually become quite competent at being able to do things that if you let them loose to do it they couldn't achieve so anyway so um what i just wanted to say now is that what i'm about the material i'm about to share may uh be an issue for some of you and i just wanted to say that if you find yourself feeling uncomfortable please um just sit in your chair straight, uh, press your back against the chair and your feet to the floor, just giving you some things to do here. Just take some deep breaths and just look around the room and say, I'm safe, this is a safe place and these people are my friends. Okay, would you do that? If Okay, so the Australian Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse... Um, that's been a, a big thing that's it's, uh, brought people out of the woodwork. But we were doing this, remember, back in 92. But over the years that we started to do this program, we had a few things happen. Um, one day we had a guy turn up in Alan's office. From He was the uh, producer from Four Corners, uh, the TV show. And uh, Alan was a bit suspicious. We don't have people here filming our church. Um, so when he came into the office, we found out why he had come was that they'd been tracking uh, 12 survivors of abuse in the Catholic Church and uh, they'd been doing a longitudinal study with them over time, filming them, etc. And over the period of two years, the majority of them were going down, but there was one guy who stood out and he was actually improving and getting better and growing. And they said to him, um, how come you're changing? How come things are working differently for you? And he said, well, I'm getting help in a church. 
And they said, the four corners said, well, we want to find out what kind of church it is that can help someone who is abused in a church. And so that's why they were sitting in our, Alan's office wanting to film in our church. And the story briefly was that um, one of our uh, families was attending a marriage course that we were doing and he was sharing over the back fence with a neighbour um, what they were learning about communication and tools for doing life well in their marriage. And the guy said, oh, oh, we need some of that. Can anybody get to do this stuff? And they said, sure, come along, I'll take you and you can come and do the course. And so this guy sat through our Making Marriage Better course over 10 sessions, started to grow. And on the last night he asked, how do you give your life to Jesus? And so there they were sitting in our church. We didn't even know, but that's the value of delegating and setting things free that people can, within that framework, these things can happen. And so it was more than talk, and so that's why that producer was in our, Alan's office. Um, we use the term survivor because it says something about victory. It says something about still here, still going, rather than victim, which... A kind of has a, a sort of um, a disempowering sense of it. And so we use that. We acknowledge the strength and the courage that people have had to keep on going. And the one thing we also need to realise is that every survivor's experience and its effects are going to be unique. So there's not some little cookie-cutter uh, way of dealing, uh, coping, growing, but there are certain fingerprints that will help a person. The Royal Commission in Australia made the need for support more pressing, but the problem is we just don't have enough trained people to do things one-on-one. -on -one. How do you actually do help? How do you become the sort of place that your community and the secular agencies actually will trust what you do? Well, this is how it happens. The first thing is building a referral network, which is what we did. We had uh, a number of places where we could refer people, doctors, psychiatrists, uh, counsellors and so on. The other thing to we also realised is that anyone who comes in contact with someone who is a survivor needs to see themselves as a facilitator, in other words, a supporter, um, and unless they have the necessary training to take that person further. One of the things that's been really helpful is the Scottish Episcopal Church developed a, a paper, Guidance on the Pastoral Care for Survivors of Sexual Abuse, both past and present, um, this is really significant because very often we have professional people, and I'm one of them, I'm a clinical counsellor, saying, oh, no, you couldn't possibly do that. You know, lay people can't um, help in support group sort of settings with survivors of sexual abuse that needs an expert person. But the ways of doing it are possible, and this paper actually um, was developed on the basis of evidence-based practice that they put out these guidelines. Love it. So the other thing about um, survivors is that, that, that it's quite courage just to go through their lives without often sharing with a single person what's happened and developing all kinds of coping mechanisms. Some of them are not so healthy, but just doing life. The other thing to realise as well is that survivors, survivors of sexual abuse can live very successful lives and be very competent in areas of their career and in their relationships. But there are overall negative um, long-term effects of being a survivor of abuse that affects perhaps in ways that sometimes the person isn't always aware of. Um, and then later, as when it's prolonged and it's not dealt with, can come out in health-related issues. 
But in terms of the groups, let me just talk a little bit about how it works. We set up the protocols and, and the structure, which are part of our, our um, Careforce Life Keys policies and procedures. We do it with all the courses. Um, and one of the stories I just want to share you briefly with, about with Anna. She was a woman who'd come to do the Door of Hope program. I just love this stuff. It just so moves me that she um, really, really struggled with her life. Uh, her life was very dysfunctional. She'd grown up with a, a big history of abuse in her background. She really struggled at school, so much so that when she came to do the course, we actually had to read the manual onto disc so that she could actually take it home and, and do it that way because her literacy levels were so poor. By the time she finished the course, we just saw such a huge change in her. She'd always thought she was dumb. She always was told that she was nothing and no one, even in class. And... Um, by the end of that, that course, that 10 weeks, with the support of the group and the feedback and encouragement, she had grown such a lot. And over time, that growth continued. And we, she went back to school, to TAFE College, uh, developed her literacy, and later she trained to become a welfare worker. I just love a story like that, don't you? Her life changed. Um, these, yeah, anyway, I could get preaching, I won't. Uh, the important thing, and we know this from what we've been hearing, and I realise that uh, with George Pell's uh, appeal in the news the last few days and then yesterday, how this has been a hugely triggering thing for people in the community who have struggled with abuse. Um, they want to be heard um, and we have to create um, a, a climate of validating people and listening to them. And I'm sure with Safe Churches stuff, you know, I've, Al and I have both done the Safe Churches thing, that's a really important thing for us to help our people and our leaders to be really aware of. But also there is somebody um, in one of our local towns in Melbourne, Bendigo, who's been tracking with some of the survivors with the George Pell thing. And uh, it, when he was in Rome and wouldn't fly across to Australia to have his interview. He, um, the survivors said, oh, well, you can have, we're told by the authorities, we, we can have a video link so you can actually listen to it. And that was not enough for them. They wanted to sit in the room. They wanted to hear him being asked questions. They wanted to hear his answers face to face because it's a really important part of the process. Um, it's not just for females, it's also males. We recognise that males have survivors of sexual abuse too. And when Alan did his first um, course for Valiant Man, there were a number of those that came up in the surveys, um, probably higher than you even realised, Al. But the male survivors of sexual abuse, we've worked with them. Uh, we've used the same course with male survivors of sexual abuse. They've used it in prisons in um, Brisbane. It's been used in churches all over the place. Why does it work? Because the issues are pretty much the same. The only difference is there's maybe a couple of things that were changed and shifted around. But other than that, um, uh, the same course. And very often for men... It's been men that's abused them, not always, but it's pretty rare that it's a female, but it does happen. We recognise that. But with most of the men, it was men. And so for them to have female facilitators is actually quite safe for them. And for them to watch a video with me doing the presenting is actually safe for them too. So they're not identifying or having to go through that barrier, emotional barrier. So it's worked really well. Um, it is a course that we developed um, 
that has credibility and longevity. Uh, thousands, thousands of people have been through it. It's something we need to do because there aren't enough one-on-one. Okay. Um, so this, I'm just briefly outlined the sessions so that we've got time for Q&A. Uh, we look at the arena of healing, which is those four areas Alan was talking about, the spiritual, the cognitive, the feelings and behaviour areas that we work in. Um, we have a signed group agreement that everyone agrees to. That's the case with all of our courses. It is a signed agreement. It's a closed group. Confidentiality is paramount, except for the legal, legal ramifications around some things. Um, so we explain in the second session what is abuse, and people might say, well, why do you have to explain that to people who've been abused? Because very often some of the behaviours and things that have happened to them, they haven't recognised as abuse. So it's part of the education process. Um, so that part of a gentle um, encouragement to accept what's happened and to acknowledge it is the beginning of the healing process, painful though it may be. Helping people to come out of some of the denial that perhaps they've lived in, it's been one of their coping mechanisms, and it's okay to live there with coping mechanisms, but it's not the place to stay. Um, the third thing, we look at stages of abuse, looking at the family background, um, how it can occur, looking at how people have survived in the middle of perhaps dysfunctional families and they've done really well to survive and uh, they are affirmed for the fact that they've survived but now we're going to move beyond that, find out who you really are, just like Anna did with her whole background and the beginning of a rebuilding process. We look at shame and guilt, obvious things there. Contempt we look at. Contempt for self. There must be something wrong with me. I'm an awful person. This happened to me. It must be my fault. Um, this doesn't happen, but it happened to me. And then when we have contempt of ourselves, it washes over into contempt for other people. And so we behave in certain ways that um, flow out of our own struggle and our own pain and our own losses. But the other thing is teaching people that they deserve to be treated with love and respect. And what does that look like? And for the women, for them to learn that they are daughters of the king. Um, session six, we look at betrayal and powerlessness. The fact that things happened to them that they had no control of or no power to stop. What does that look like? And taking back power, taking back control, taking back decisions and choices and taking steps to trust God. Um, Seventh one, we look at ambivalence. Well, it's a funny word, isn't it? It means I loved it, but I hated it. I loved it, but I hated it. Helping women to know, and guys too, that your body was created by God for sexual intimacy and sexual relationships, but in the course of abuse, it's been used in a way that God didn't design it. And so it's not that your feelings were wrong, it's just that, that what happened to you was wrong. But often people think that, the, se the whole sexual, my response, if I'd really ha it had really been abuse, I would have hated it. No, your body would have responded anyway. But so helping people to know how to deal with that and then how to bring healing and change, particularly if they're married, into the married relationship, if that's been an area that they've struggled with. And knowing that, God, that sexuality was a gift that God gave people, that it was intended for pleasure and it was used against them. And talking about the whole restoration there as a process, obviously not just in one session, but it is a part of the journey. Um, then we look at the kind of defence mechanisms, the walls, the shields, the things we put up to try and survive, which were necessary, which it's 
it's great that people found a way to survive in the middle of all that, but God wants more. God wants to restore. He wants to help you be the person you were created to be and working through that. Uh, and then looking at how to get through um, the dependency. Because uh, when you've been hurt and when you've been injured, the tendency is to be very dependent on yourself not to trust other people because other people haven't been trusted in my world. So the only person I can trust is me. And so get, and that flows over to into the relationship with God. So building that bridge into a growing interdependence with God and with other people. Um, and then the last one, we look at what, it, what is love really? A forgiveness is an aspect of love, what it is and what it isn't. So that's the course. Um, so I've talked about that. Now, Alan's brother was the executive director of Teen Challenge in Victoria. And he said, we've never had a person present for rehab for drug and alcohol has not been sexually abused. And he was the director for 14 years. Uh, supporting a survivor, here's a few things that... Um, this comes out of that paper by the um, Scottish Episcopal Church. They said, research shows that the people who help survivors do not come from any one professional background or use a particular therapeutic approach and they do not necessarily have high professional status. Now, I'm going to qualify that in a minute for all those of you who are counsellors. Um, but supporting a survivor, there's no fixed rules for, for helping but there are some guidelines, Okay. As I said, everyone's unique. The first thing is to come alongside those who are healing and support them. It's just support. Sometimes when you find out or you're supporting someone, don't let it just be you one-on-one, -on -one, but form a triad. Have a three. So it's, it's not... Otherwise, it can become a bit overwhelming for the person who's doing the pastoral support. Um, ideally, with someone who's a bit further down the track in the healing process, and maybe another pastoral care person who understands and has some insight um, on how to bring support but not counsel. We're not doing counselling. Um, and that can uh, form the basis of a future small group. Um, where do I get to? Sorry. Okay, the third thing. Um, prayer and emotional support is part of that process. One of the things that people have, been, have found helpful is to go through the boundaries course um, by Cloud and Townsend. You can do that with maybe the three of them. You can do that whenever they want. So you're not waiting for a group particular time on a Thursday night, but it can be done when it works for them. Um, but to develop the skills of support person through the small group leader and facilitator training. One of the things that we discovered is the, the more people we had trained in that area although they didn't all go on to be uh, life keys support group type people, they had the competency and understanding when we needed pastoral support for someone in the church that they would actually then know who to call on because they've done the training, they understand the processes, they understand where boundaries start and responsibilities continue and so on. So we had people who wouldn't create dependency on those they were supporting that they could track with people regardless of what the issue is, whether it was sexual abuse or anything else. We had a, a good, strong cohort of 150 in the church that we could draw on. Now, I mean, you scale that down to how big your church is, but at least you've got people who can do that journey with somebody else and it's not all coming back to you. It was a huge support for us in terms of pastoral care in the church. Um, the everyday issues are th that are really important is that 
You don't unplug a person from coping mechanisms. They have survived and they have uh, done as a good a job of thriving as they can. You stay in the support zone when, it's a, when you're a support person, non-professional person. Um, the person might be on medication, so you never say you shouldn't be. Uh, you shouldn't be on. It's not your job. The third thing is don't tackle behaviours that leave a person vulnerable. In other words, start unravelling a person, pulling down their internal structure and, and not knowing how to rebuild that. That's the professional's job. You need to wait till you're in a safe environment for that to happen. Yeah, I'm looking at the time. Um, everyday issues. Uh, listen, don't probe too deeply. In other words, if they're going to tell you the story, don't ask sort of voyeuristic questions. Just let them talk about what they want to talk about, um, but just make them useful if you're going to ask questions. Um, don't be voyeuristic. Um, if you've got curi- qu- you're wondering about stuff, don't don't wonder. That's not appropriate. Um, but beware of challenges for yourself, and that's why we say use a triad and get support yourself if you are one of the people who are tracking with someone. Um, the other thing to do with people that you're supporting is. Get them out exercising, walking, doing some fun things. Because when you've been in survival mode most of your life, you don't even know what fun is. Um, you need to know how to have fun. You have to, someone has to actually teach you how weird is that. No, it's not weird actually when you've been through a struggle and a lot of pain in your life. Uh, get the person journaling for feelings and self-awareness. So they're actually, um, it's another way of people getting out their feelings um, and building awareness. And build a timeline for them. So, for example, if this person's come to you and they've shared or it's come across your path, then get the triad going, but work towards a time when they can actually attend a group. Or in that triad process, this is why we say referral, that person might need to be referred to a professional person um, and get some help there as well. Um, And then model safe and healthy boundaries. So um, don't do their shopping. Don't do the things that you know that they're capable of doing because all you do is create dependency in that person. Um, So just for us, and this is what we advise, is that people who come to do the Door of Hope need to be screened. So we have an interview process to find out what help they've had. Uh, We want to know have they had any help or is this the first time they've actually put up their hand. If, they, if it's the first time, we want them to see a counsellor for an assessment as to whether they um, have appropriately, are, are ready for a group process. Not everybody is. Um, if they're having counselling, then we'd ask for uh, a release from their counsellor that they're okay with them coming to do the group. Uh, it may be uh, a very um, historical sexual abuse. We had somebody, it was 20 years ago, but she was at a place where she could self-select. So you've got to do some kind of screening process. And in the screening process, we actually that's where we have our professional people and our very skilled facilitators doing that process. So it's duty of care. There's questions on our website that you would ask and the things that you would need if they were on medication to that's psychotropic that you would ask their doctor for permission for them to attend the group. Most people are thrilled to bits to have some kind of program they can send people to because, as I said, there's not enough one-on-one. The other thing is the cost for people for um, counselling. If they don't have private health cover, and even then it doesn't cover it. Um, so a group is a, a good way of helping people. 
with all of the guidelines that come with that. And finally, the person may have lived a long time with the effects of abuse and it doesn't need to be fixed tomorrow. And urgency is not the approach to rebuilding unless the person's in danger. That's a whole other thing. And respect the time and space it takes to heal. Yes, people can have power encounters and the Lord can really touch people significantly, but there's a process because there's a whole inner rebuilding and thinking process that needs to take place in people for them to be able to stand in the midst of the healing that God can bring to them. Anyway, for us, this was one of our hugely effective and still is evangelistic courses um, that our church used and developed and continues to. Um, And, you know, some people used to say, we don't know of any other course like that around, and we'd think, oh, no, we're being really modest. No, I don't think so, but actually there isn't. I don't know any other course around that can help um, lay people, support people who are trained, get into the process of of bringing healing, with supervision, mind you, um, to people in group settings. And I think as churches, let us be the answer because the Royal Commission and all this stuff with George Pell and the Catholic system, uh, who have good people in it, who are suffering as well, um, we need to be seen to be in, um, being bringing some answers. And one of the things we found was when we had good protocols and policies, when we did things the right way, the secular agencies around us and the doctors and the people used to send people to us because they were really happy with the way we handled issues. So that's very important in terms of our integrity. Okay, I'm done. I'd like to show them just one last slide um, as to why we do the training the way we do. The last slide that Helen would have done if she'd had her own computer would be about training. Mm. But it goes to the whole question of training at every level in our churches for small groups. The opportunities effective small group ministry can open up for every church are quite unique. What we need to appreciate, however, is the importance of the training process given the wide spectrum of small groups that could be functioning in any church and the different skills needed to handle that diversity well. We make a mistake when we think small group ministry is just the shallow end of the pool for which not much preparation is required. The deep end of the pool, as far as small groups are concerned, are those groups where the focus is going to be on restoration. We could be talking about something like divorce recovery, marriage enrichment, parenting, chemical addiction, grief support, recovery for survivors of sexual abuse, or a group focusing on sexual discipleship, such as the Valiant Man course. All of these groups are at the deeper end of the pool. Now, questions arise. Should my group be an open group or a closed group? AA have determined that it's appropriate for their style of group to function as an open group. But would that be appropriate for your divorce recovery group? That's the first choice to be made. Then come questions about protocols and group agreements. How will people get into this group? Do we need to interview? Do we take all comers or do we need to assess their readiness for a group? How large should the group be? Uh, of what group agreements will be required to keep this group safe? Will agreements be written and signed? Will there be supervision of facilitators? How will we debrief? You see, when you're dealing with people who have already been hurt and they're needing a safe place to grow, the protocols and the behaviours are critical. 
Facilitators will need to clearly understand the protocols and why they exist. They will need skills, insights, tools and support. But if they have training, if they have support, and if they do their job well, they can be the difference between life and death for the people they care for. The deep end of the pool is a bit scary for you? Well, let's go to the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> At this end of the pool, the focus of the group is not around restoration, it's around function. Now, we just want a worship team small group so our worship team can develop close relationships and get ready for Sunday services. Al, we just want good connect groups so our believers can get together and develop friendships. Oh, all those protocols you mentioned, well, they aren't necessary for us. I mean, signed agreements and all that protocol stuff, just unnecessary. I mean, just how much training can anyone need for that? Well, you're right. To apply all the same elements to the shallow end of the pool would be unhelpful. However, when a small group leader has never experienced the protocols, the structures and the skills necessary to make sure that ministry at the deep end of the pool is actually helpful, they have no idea how to adapt those elements to the group that they're leading. So groups begin without ever addressing key issues that will be vital to their success. Now we can show you how to adapt those elements to make sure your group hits the bullseye. Will your worship group be open or closed? Will your connect group be open or closed? What group agreements and group goals will you discuss with your group to ensure everyone is on the same page and unfulfilled expectations don't break someone's heart six months down the track? And here's something everyone needs to hear. It only takes one comment by one person in a small group for that group to suddenly move from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool. Suddenly a wounded heart surfaces. A sin is confessed. A grief is expressed. A contradiction is articulated. Someone just found out they have cancer. And the water just got deeper. No matter what kind of group you intend to lead, every leader needs the kind of training to ensure that moment is handled appropriately. Anyone who wants to be effective in leading an alpha group will need to know how to function at both ends of the pool. They'll need to know how to fulfill the function of friendship and openness around food and how to provide a safe place for the most profound doubts and fears to be expressed in an atmosphere of safety, support and understanding. Every small group leader and every facilitator needs to understand how to function for Jesus in deeper water and then learn how to modify and adapt those skills for the group that God has given them to lead and that's what this course is all about. Let's express our thanks, shall we, to, uh, to these guys. That's fantastic. And uh, Helen's prayed for us. I'd like to just pray for them uh, before we make our way out of this room. But before I do that, uh, three things in order of increasing importance. Eat the food, uh, buy some resources, but then probably most importantly, I reckon, um, uh, spread the word in terms of the other opportunities over the next few days. Uh, there are a number of them for different kind of categories of people and uh, these guys have come a long way I think it'd be great just to absolutely maximise just to spread the word tell people uh, you need to come and hear this stuff it's, um, it's life changing but let me just pray on your behalf uh, for these guys as we uh, part company today Lord we do thank you for uh, this morning's sessions and uh, just mindful that uh, there's just been some uh, difficult and sensitive and challenging issues for us to wrestle with 
and uh, along with Helen, I would just pray for each one of us that you'd help us to take hold of those things that you are planting within us, uh, not only for our own healing, but for ministry we might undertake in the future where we'll be um, helping others through some of these difficult areas. So thank you for uncovering these things. And uh, Lord, we do want to pray for Alan and Helen uh, over these days to come, that uh, uh, in the midst of a very busy and um, grueling schedule in many ways, that you will empower them, that you'll encourage them, you'll strengthen and sustain them, that you'll give them unexpected blessing, Lord. Give them unexpected uh, inspiration of just the right thing to say at the right time, even if it's not in the notes, not in the system. And yet, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you just breathe your life into the words that they say in these different contexts. And uh, we pray that these would be uh, words uh, of, of healing and of genuine restoration, not just information, Lord, but life-transforming, life-transforming uh, substance that will just bring change to people's lives for the better. So bless them, Lord. We thank you for them. And uh, we pray your strengthening, your encouragement into their lives over these next few days in particular. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.